Jonas coming to you on the Roberts and Jonas live program this time for what is today? March the 9th. Boy, time is going fast. The year is almost over. It will be 2024 pretty soon. Unbelievable. Or 2023. See, okay. So um, let me get my bearings straight here. So glad you could be with us. As you know, this program is set aside for you to ask your questions, give your comments on any topic whatsoever. And I, as my role as host of this program, will endeavor to answer your questions to the best of my ability using our Catholic faith, scripture, tradition, the fathers, the medievals, the popes, the councils, the catechisms, and just about anything I can find to help you walk away satisfied that your question has indeed been answered. We come to you every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. And usually we um, will have a um, special topic at the top of the program. And one of those topics, which I had promised you, was going to be E. Michael Jones, who's going to be talking about his recent book called The Dangers of Beauty. We covered this book, I think, about a month ago it was, and we got through half of it, and we want to do the second half. And um, <clears throat> I heard from Michael today. He was ready to come on the program, said he was anxious to finish it. Lo and behold, he has not shown up. So, And then I called his house uh, out there in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, there is no answer. So I left a message and I told him if he gets in, get the message, uh, click on the link we sent to him and we'll patch him in and uh, we'll take off from there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Until then, uh, I will take some questions, uh, Q&A, and um, there were a few that I had that people had sent me. And since I wasn't going to have Q&A tonight, now I don't know what I did with them. So, um, yeah, too bad for that. I'm not prepared because I thought we were going to be doing something else. Let me see if I type written any of these out. Um, oh, by the way, oh, here's one of them. And then also I have an advertiser that um, is going to be regular on our show. And I am supposed to read. Um, now I, I see some, hear some things beeping in the back there. I don't know. Oh, that is Eagle My e. Michael Jones. He is here, John. So um, I don't know if I can't hear him. Mike, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Okay, all right. Go. So did you get my my message or did you just um I got I didn't get your message. I sent you a message. I apologize for being late, but my media guy didn't show up. Oh, okay. I thought it might be something simple like that. Okay. So uh my producer um is going to take off from where we left off, I think a month ago, and you can uh, I already explained to our audience what we're doing. And um, if they remember from a month ago, uh, you were explaining bits and pieces of your 
recent book, The Dangers of Beauty. Let me ask you, though, uh, to start off, um, how are sales going on your book? Good. We're doing well. We've done a, did a book tour to the East Coast, book tour to the West Coast. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's doing well. We're good, selling good. books. Yeah. And how, how are you holding up under all the fanfare and the pressure? Well, uh, I'm holding up. Yeah, I, I'll, be, I'll be able to bear up under this. Uh. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Um, so um, the last time we were together, we were just a few pictures shy of the, um, the Jewish century in your book. So I just told the producer, let's just start right there. Um, and uh, because there was just a couple of pictures uh, to go. So here we are, Mike. Um, this is uh, your good friend, Picasso. And uh, this starts off the uh, fourth chapter of your book, Jewish Modernity. Um, Picasso's attack on mimesis, um, Schinberg's attack on tonality. Um, so you can take the wing and start flying. Okay, so what <laughs> we, we left out a large chunk of the book. Uh, especially in terms of music. Uh, uh, if uh, what happened over this the course of the 19th century uh, in terms of uh, the visual arts uh, is that the uh, the camera was invented around the middle of the 19th century in France. Uh, and now you had a machine that seemed as if it could do mimesis. Uh, it seemed that way. And this caused a crisis in in the visual arts, because uh, suddenly the the artist realized I'm going through all of this trouble uh, to imitate nature, and here a machine can do it simply by pressing a button. And so what happened was there was a gradual withdrawal from uh, mimesis. Uh, there was a crisis uh, in the uh, the salon in France in the middle of the, the uh, 19th century. The uh, the uh, participants in the salon had reached a kind of perfection in terms of a style that they were created in terms of the female form, for example. Uh, and there was a group of people who felt that it was uh, too, it, they weren't imitating nature anymore. They were imitating other works of art. And at that point, you had a group of people who broke away from it, beginning with uh, Manet in the middle of the century. He had a, a salon of his own. His work was uh, not allowed in. So he put on a, a, an exhibition of his own. And at this point, uh, the, there, you started to have more of the, the artist entering into uh, the artwork. Uh, and in particular, uh, we, we had the sense of what, uh, how, how is the artist entering into it? To what extent does the artist contribute to the work of art? Uh, it's not simply what the camera uh, did. There was something else involved here. And I think it's true because in a sense, the only thing that can really imitate nature is the mind. A, a machine can't imitate nature because it can't make choices. Uh, so it, it started, what she's had was the rise of something called impressionism, which was how, what impression does this make on me, the artist? Uh, instead of just uh, painting something that would be uh, abstract, uh, let's say a tree, uh, if, instead of just going to the, to the form, the platonic form of what a tree is or what anything is, uh, 
or uh, a generalized understanding of something uh, like the icon, for example, which is really not based on, closely on reality. Uh, let's talk about uh, the impression that this make on the artist's eyes, and we'll talk about the difference that light makes over the course of the day and so on and so forth. And that was Impressionism. And then you got to someone like uh, Cezanne, who started to break things down again, even more uh, radically, uh, back to the forms, trying to find that form in nature in a kind of uh, a, a radical way. And then you had uh, this painting. He did a, a painting called The Grand Aethers, uh, uh, a kind of uh, architectural kind of linking of all these figures in some type of uh, coherent whole. And at this point, uh, Picasso entered the scene. And what you're seeing here is uh, Les Damsel d'Avignon. Uh, and it is uh, his send-up of, uh, of Cezanne's uh, painting of the, the, the Grand Bagneur. Now, what you see here at this point, you're, you're seeing something different now. Because that was uh, an imitation of nature. It was honest. I, I, I wasn't. I don't particularly find it satisfying. I think it was a withdrawal, a withdrawal away from the boundaries of mimesis that had already been established. But uh, I, it was an honest attempt. I don't think that's what we're dealing with here. This uh, is the uh, Damsel d'Avignon. The Davignon is the uh, the red light district in. Barcelona, I believe. Uh, so these are prostitutes, uh, and they are uh, in, engaging in deliberately uh, provocative uh, poses. Uh, and also, uh, you've got this this weird kind of addition of other elements, like those. The woman on the right hand side uh, looks uh, like a baboon, or like an African mask. And the other one down below that is deliberately disjointed. So you're, you're deliberately thwarting the impression uh, of the viewer uh, who's trying to see uh, from his point of view, why is the eye, why is that eye there? Why are the eyes, it looks like a flounder, two eyes on the same side of the head. Why is this going on? Well, it's going on because Picasso is trying to be deliberately transgressive at this point. Uh, a man who has a lot of anger uh, build up inside of him. I think at this point he felt that he didn't get the recognition that he deserved. Uh, and so he's kind of languishing here. And then the big moment takes place in 20th century art, which is when the Jewish art dealer arrives. So the, the man's name was uh, Kahnweiler. He was a German Jew. He arrived, and I think he understood the moment in art which is basically once once you start moving away from from mimesis or realism and once the the the, the picture starts to become more and more difficult to understand more and more removed this is the moment that the dealer becomes the powerful player in the art world and that's that's precisely what happened with uh Kahnweiler and his relationship with Picasso and Brock. Kahnweiler showed up. He was a scion of a, a German Jewish uh, banking family, wanted to make his way in art, but I don't think he ever lost his sense of being a banker as well. 
and uh, the, the idea that this is, there's the money to be made here. And the money to be made was basically by creating a movement, uh, which he referred to as Cubism. He created the name Cubism, and there are all kinds of pictures uh, that you could put up. Uh, this is uh, which are more typical of that movement. It wasn't just Picasso; it was uh, George Braque as well. And once Conviler uh, created the movement, he was in charge of the operation. So that established the pattern for the 20th century. The dealer now uh, is the powerful agent uh, because it's hard to tell what's going on simply by looking at it and seeing it as a, as a great imitation of nature. Okay, a couple questions. Um, this piece of art is probably, if it was sold, you know, $250 million. Uh, as a lot of Picasso's art is sold for at Christie's these days. Uh, so in light of what you're telling us about Conweiler and his promotion of Cubism and everybody else associated with it, are you saying or, or can we make the conclusion that without a guy like Conweiler in the midst to promote this stuff, that this art form really wouldn't have been popular, really wouldn't have been... the sell for you know exorbitant fees and would die its own death so to speak um or was it an art form that people were ready for at this time and it doesn't matter whether conweiler was there or not no i don't th I, uh, picasso later said thank god for conweiler and i think when he said that it was an admission that basically he would have been uh, languished in obscurity if conweiler hadn't taken him created a movement and then got uh, uh, wealthy people to buy it. So the fact that it's uh, it's going for $250 million now is a function of the economy, where the economy got like quantitative easing, created huge amounts of money out there. Uh, and so a lot of money chasing a limited number of artworks. So that means that the price is going to go up. So we now have absolutely obscene prices, which are, that's a function of the economy, of this ridiculous economy that we have in fiat, currency in the United States. Uh, but the fact that he was, that this guy is well known, I think it's a function of the dealer. I think that's exactly the point that we're trying, that we're, we're starting to see now. Now, I think it becomes even more obvious if we move to uh, abstract expressionism, yeah. uh, which would be about uh, uh, 40 years down the road from this, from this painting. Right. Uh, at that point, you had very powerful players entering into the art world. And at that point also, you have a complete um, uh, a complete uh, removal, oh, a step away from any idea of mimesis at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about, let's say, the, the, the famous uh, dripping paintings of uh, Jackson Pollock. Yeah. There was an incident, I think, that made it apparent that uh, Mondrian is much more organized and is recognizable than uh, uh, Jackson Pollock. But uh, the fact of the matter is that the Mondrian painting held uh, was hung in this museum and it was hung upside down for 75 years and nobody noticed. So uh, that's some indication of what we're talking about. So at this point, uh, you had... Uh, Jackson Pollock, the dripping paint. His time called him Jack the Dripper. Uh, and why is this? Why is this paint? Why is this famous? Well, it's famous for a very simple reason because significant players got involved in it. So the first significant player was Nelson Rockefeller. 
he bought these big paintings up and he uh, placed them on the the uh, walls of Chase Manhattan banks in New York. So here is a, a significant institution lending credibility to something that people would look at and say, you know, I can't make heads or tails of it. Don't know whether it's hung right side up or upside down. These terms are now meaningless. At that point, another powerful operator got involved, and that was the CIA. And they started promoting abstract expressionism as an example of the freedom that America had uh, in the art world, uh, which was the opposite of the Soviet Union. At this point, the CIA founded a group called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And I deal with that uh, in, in the book uh, uh, in, and the role that uh, Nicholas Nabokov played in that organization. But with powerful players like this behind it, it became, it became at this point, I I insider trading. So the so you would go to an art gallery, uh, uh, yeah, an art gallery, and you'd uh, sit down, and the guy would pull out something like uh, Mark Rothko or something like that, and you couldn't tell whether it was right side up or upside down, but uh, the dealer would say to you, and this this is probably Leo Costelli, uh, who was the guy who got in at the end of. Um, abstract expressionism, and then became the guy who created uh, pop art, Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol was a creator of Leo Castelli. He had an Italian name, but he was a Jew as well. So you sit down there and you say, well, I, I can't tell what this is. And the guy will say, well, it doesn't matter because in 10 years, it'll be worth 50 times what you paid for it now. And at that point, the guy said, well, that sounds like a good deal. So he writes a check and he's got this thing and he hangs it on the wall. The head of BlackRock, I forget the guy's name, uh, but I was told he was a big uh, collector of Mark Rothko. Uh, well, the head of BlackRock is interested in making money. And this obviously became a, a, a great way to make money. So over the, over the course of the 20th century, what you had was the dealer coming in and just basically orchestrating the whole show. Uh, the other example of this would be uh, Albert Barnes, the, the Philadelphian, the guy who grew up in Fishtown, which is where my ancestors came from, made a killing in the pharmaceutical industry by coming up with a salve that would prevent congenital syphilis and sent uh, a, a buyer over to Paris uh, when nobody knew what Impressionism was or who Degas was and bought them up for a song and put them in his uh, art gallery in uh, Ballet I went there. You had to have like the secret uh, Masonic handshake to get into that. It wasn't a, a museum. It was a school. And you had to know somebody to get in there. And I got in there as an undergraduate. And we walked through. And there's just one Degas after another one. Uh, you know, very famous paintings all there. And you get to see the original. Uh, it's not my taste, but that's what it was. And uh, so he hated the uh, Philadelphia art world. Uh, the art museum crowd, even though Philadelphia was famous for its for art. That's the only thing Philadelphia is famous for because it was run by Quakers and Quakers can't discuss anything because they're all infallible. So they just paint pictures instead. And so the Wyeth family grew up uh, in Philadelphia, three generations of the Wyeth family. Uh, N.C. Wyeth did those famous illustrations of uh, uh, Last of the Mohicans, Treasure Island, and so on and so forth. This is what the Philadelphia art world was. Barnes decided to put it uh, in the hands, put the collection in the hands of a Negro university 
uh, I think it's Lincoln University, kind of south of Philadelphia. And the Barnes Institution was there, and it was run by Miss Demasia, and then she died. And then suddenly, the president of the uh, of the university realized that he was sitting on about four billion dollars worth of artwork. And at that point, the, his temptation got the better of it, and he started borrowing money based on this type of thing. And mm -hmm. that's a bad idea. Eventually, it ended up with what has been called the greatest art heist in human history when basically the Philadelphia uh, city of Philadelphia came in and stole all that dragged it out of where Barnes wanted it and set it up in their own type of operation that in uh, on the uh, art near the art museum along the parkway in Philadelphia yeah um, I think there's something to be said going back to Jackson Pollock that artwork of this type is also not just to make money per se although it does make money lots of money that he is expressing a view of life that at the turn of the century with the evolutionary theory and uh, all kinds of science issues coming up and they were discovering the cosmos how big it was and blah 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 you we lived according to them in a time and chance universe this was this was not the universe of the middle ages where everything was worked by clockwork by a chief designer and we were the the center of the universe and everything was going well we were now in pascal's horror and um so you live in this time and chance universe and you have to express that and one way to express it is uh, jackson pollock's dripping because you have a can swinging back and forth with paint inside of it and it drips wherever it drips and if there's no if there's no ex better expression of chance than that i don't know what it is but that's what it is so it, it appealed to the men of that day who said yeah that's the kind of universe we live in time and chance and and that attracted them to that kind of artwork and so mondrian or uh, andy warhol whoever it was when you look at this Picasso painting, you're basically seeing that same expression. It's not the Madonna of Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci. It, this is the grotesque thing of time and chance. That's the kind of world that men live in in the 20th century. And it's been well expressed. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's part of the, the chaotic world that the people were experiencing at that point. Uh, but it's also, I think, a, a, an expression of will. The will uh, becomes more powerful in in these paintings. I think that's what you're seeing here. You know, the will of the artist is becoming mm. more powerful. Okay. Uh, and and I think that there's an appeal uh, to certain people who felt that, well, uh, they look at it and they think, well, well, I could do that. I think that's first thing. And so your will is now being empowered simply by the fact that that, that guy's will is empowered. And you have this illusion that somehow, uh, you know, I'm an artist. I yeah. could do that. Uh, whereas that's the exact opposite of what uh, art was in the, in the, the great period uh, beginning with Giotto in, yeah. in Italy, where yeah. it was basically a skill that you learned by becoming an apprentice to someone who already had that skill. And there were clear criteria, and art would could not. Kandinsky said this in the 20th century: art cannot advance unless it's a realistic portrayal of nature. Because yeah. how do you know it's good? 
How do you how do you know that this uh, dripping painting is better than that dripping painting? <laughs> how how do you know? Yeah. You don't know. So but but the point here is so it's it's a little bit like the whole uh, idea of uh, uh, sexual liberation, which was also part of that. That's clearly part of this painting. Uh, and basically, so I can do whatever I want uh, now. I've been liberated, uh, but you liberated yourself from uh, moral, practical reasoning. And at that point, you became a slave of your passions. Yeah. And so it became very uh, delusion, a delusion experience very quickly because, yeah, this is about will, but you got to re you, you didn't learn that it's the will of the powerful now. You're not powerful. There are certain powerful people who now get to determine what art is. Mm -hmm. And if you think you're part of that crowd, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And that that got worse over the period of time, which I call uh, Jewish modernity, uh, because uh, the Jews, when the Jews took it over, uh, they began they were naturally transgressive. They had a natural penchant towards being transgressive, and it became, and they had this sense of empowerment that got worse and worse as the century went on. Okay, so, speaking of which, let's let's move on because we've been stuck on this picture for a half hour. We there's a lot more to see. So, John, let's let's. Okay, so here's your man. Right now, this this is a this is in some sense a completely different story. Okay, so to, in order to talk about Schoenberg, I have to talk about Wagner. And in order to talk about Wagner, I have right, well, to talk about this. Beethoven. Let's, and let's, to, to, to talk about Beethoven, I have to talk about Bach. All right, well, let's skip Schoenberg right now, and let's go to the next picture. All right, this is Manet's um, uh, painting of the... Uh, this is Manet basically uh, giving his version of the... Uh, Venus Durbino of Titian. If you've seen, I cover. Uh, did we cover this the last time? I think we. I usually cover this in my in my talk because Titian is a very important. Well, we covered. Uh, yeah, uh, we, covered, we covered about half a dozen of Titian's works. Right, so. and I told you about all the psychological drama that goes into Titian's. Yeah, uh, whether Titian's we remember it or not is another story. But you did tell us, yes. Mm -hmm. So this is clearly uh, that it, it's. He's working out of that mold. That's the tradition that uh, Monet is working out of. This is a replay of the v Venus Durbino. But you have certain changes here uh, that are making this more transgressive than, Ven than the Venus Durbino was. Uh, you've got, for example, the whole um, point of the Venus Durbino was the expression that he captured on her face. The question of what's it going to be? Is it going to be lust or is it going to be love? That was the, the crucial issue at the time of Titian was doing the painting. He was caught up in the middle of it. You know, I got these patrons who want me to do pornography. I'm being pushed in that direction. My best friend Aretino is a pornographer. Everything's heading in that direction. How am I going to resist this? How am I going to deal with this? And that painting of uh, the Venus and the musician where the guy's got his hand on the keyboard, but looking at the Venus's crotch, that's an example of that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're farther down the road here now. And I think that this is, uh, this is Manet talking about precisely what we were just talking about, namely the relationship between art and money, mm -hmm. because this lady is a prostitute. 
And so the, the drama here is that the maid there is bringing flowers from one of her customers. And uh, she is looking at us uh, in a kind of, that's not the same face as the Venus Durbino. This lady is a hard, she's been hardened by the, her life as a prostitute, and it's a business transaction. And so the, 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 the foil to her face is her hand, and her hand is kind of harsh, and it's kind of grasping. And, and I think this is his comment on the art world at that time. In other words, money is taking over. Uh, it's a money operation. Beauty is taking uh, a distant second to money. And, and that's why we have a prostitute here. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, next picture, John. Now, again, we're just following the sequence of pictures in, in your book, Mike. So if it seems a little yeah. mixed up to you, um, you know, that's... You know. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. I, I think this is hung upside down. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we don't know. How can we know? How can we know? This is this is Mark Rothko. This is the guy that black, the head of BlackRock uh, bought as an investment. It's an investment. It's not. I, who am I to say it's not art? Who is this guy? Mark Rothko. If you had Mark Rothko paintings, you'd be a rich man right now. But I'm telling you, I don't see uh, my niece. Art is imitation of nature. That is what Aristotle said. That's all it's ever going to be. And in my humble opinion, I have to say, I don't see any imitation of nature going on here. I see manipulation of financial markets, and that's all I see here. I, I remember when I was, um, I used to read Time Magazine when I was a teenager, and I used to go right to the art section. Don't ask me why, but that's just what I was doing at that time. And there was a picture like this. It might have been Rothko's. I don't know. But it was orange on the top and I think red in the middle and purple on the bottom. You know, I could have my colors mixed up. And the painting was called Orange, Red, and Purple. And it, the, the price tag was in Time Magazine because somebody had bought it. And this was back in the late 60s. It cost $30,000. And the painting was called Orange, Red, and Purple. I don't know if you know about that painting or not, and I may have my colors mixed up, but that's the price these things were going. Back in the 60s, they were selling for that much. That was a lot of money in the 60s. Yeah. That was a lot of money, and this was before quantitative easing uh, flooded the money economy with money. These the, the, the Wall Street crowd in Manhattan had their front hooves in the trough. They're the first guys to get the slop to uh, uh, start feeding off it. Mm. And so they had all this money that had to be sopped up one way or the other. And so it went into the art market or the the uh, the real estate market. And the the architectural equivalent of quantitative easing is the skinny tower. I don't know whether you've seen these buildings in, in Manhattan lately. Hmm. When uh, did that, what year did that quantitative easing come? When uh, it was, well, 2008 was one one of them. I mean, the, the, the government will always bail out Wall Street when Wall Street's bets go bad. So 2008 was the first example, and it's been happening ever since. How about because they took us off the gold standard in 71? That, um, that didn't, it, okay. The, the, there was an immediate uh, effect of inflation because of the Vietnam War. They, the government had gotten involved in the Vietnam War, so it couldn't really 
uh, honor its commitment in gold. France was uh, uh, completely antagonized at this point because the CIA had tried to assassinate Charles de Gaulle and de Gaulle found out about it. And instead they orchestrated the revolution of 68. That was a Jewish operation as well. And so de Gaulle is now threatening to demand payment in gold, which the government simply could not make anymore. And so they got off the gold standard. That led to the oil crisis. That led to money flooding into places like Saudi Arabia, uh, which I I was in uh, in Germany in '73. Uh, ended up in Berlin. I'm at a pizzeria on the Kudam, and I meet a Saudi prince who was there because he had ordered ten Mercedes Benz automobiles, and he wanted to know why they weren't being delivered. So that money slopped into uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia. And they decided they liked cars, and so they went to Germany, went on a buying spree for that. But uh, some of this, when you have this excess cash, a lot of it will go into art because art it will be limited, and the 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 Jews are in control of the uh, who 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 is and who isn't part of the scene, and uh, so it's like a safe investment. Yeah. That's what this okay. is. All right, next next picture. All right, so that's Conviler. Yeah, Con uh, Picasso and Conviler. Yeah, you don't need to talk about them. We already talked about them. Next picture. Uh, right. This is this is more typical of Cubism. Uh, Picasso never really broke completely with nature, in the way that uh, let's say Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko did. There was always something there that kind of kept hanging on, reminding you of something. But this is more typical of uh, Cubism than uh, the. Uh, the Damsel d'Avignon that we began with. So tell us, where did the term cubism originate and what does it mean? Well, it's little cubes. And I think it was uh, Kahnweiler who came up with the term. Really? He was the idea that create, created the movement. It was, it was a movement. Before that, it was just two artists kind of languishing uh, without many people paying any attention to them. But once Conviler got in and once the, once the prices started to come in and started to go up, then uh, it, it was a time of movements, you know? And this is, you're talking about the period uh, preceding, uh, leading up to and then following World War I, where there was a huge crisis of civilization. Everybody felt that the old forms were obsolete and we needed new forms for a new age. Bauhaus architecture came into being at this point, and this was an example of that. And people wanted to get in on what was new. Yeah. Okay. Novelty always sells, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you can get it on the ground floor. If you get it on the ground floor, then you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> uh, okay. Next picture. Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorites. Um, this is a nude of Picasso. I just threw this in there because it, it seemed to fit everything you were saying. Um, this is a nude called I, I Love Ava. And you can't see it, but in the, in the lower end of the painting, he writes the words in French, I love Ava. And, and yet this is a typical cubist piece of art where you can't make sense out of what you're looking at and this as i said before is portraying picasso's view of the world it's a it's a topsy-turvy time and chance you never know what's going to happen world and that's what you get when you look at this painting you don't know what's going to come out of it and yet 
He's a man that has to live in this world, whether he thinks it's crazy, absurd, or whatever, like most existentialists, he's got to live in it. And so the only thing he has to hold on to is his love for Ava. And he's painted Ava in many different ways. But here he expresses, yeah, this is all I have to hold on to, my love for Ava. Everything else is absurd. And that's well, that's your typical existentialist right there. Yeah, it's also uh, Ava Goel was his, uh, his lover, his girlfriend at this particular period of time. So if you want to, I think if you want to understand Picasso, you have to go through his, uh, his mistresses, uh, one after another. And the, in each instance, you have the same uh, trajectory, which is basically when he falls in love with the woman, he paints a realistic portrait because he's obviously interested. Obviously, he just fell in love with her. You're interested in what she looks like, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, at a certain point, he gets tired of her, and he decides it's time to move on. And at that point, you, you get this cubist distortion. Mm. Uh, and this is an example of that. This is not the early, uh, an early picture. He put a, I think it was probably meant ironic when he says, I love Ava. Because if he really loved her, uh, he would do a realistic portrait of her, and he did. You, you could I, I go I go through a number of these pairs in, in the book, where you, it's the beginning of the love affair, it's realistic. The end of the love affair, it's not realistic. It's cubistic, and it's a function of sexual disgust. So. Yeah. It's his revulsion at, uh, I'm tired of this woman. She's a pain in the ass. She's always crying about something or other. I've had it. I'm moving on. That's that's the, the, the other pain. Yeah. So I wonder if he was a manic depressive or obsessive compulsive kind of personality. <laughs> because his paintings change so much from period to period over how emotional he gets about his love lives and everything else going on in his life. Anyway, let's go on to the next picture, John. Oh, there it is. I love Ava. All right, next picture. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that's Ava. Is that Ava? No, this is. Um, uh, Who is it? This is. Uh, no, this is Marie Therese Walter. Okay, yeah, she, there it is at the top left. The, the, she's a, a teenager when she meets. I think. I think he, she just. He, she, he bumped into her walking out of the subway in Paris, and he says, hey, I'm Picasso. We're going to do great things together. Uh, that's that's a photograph. I don't know whether we have uh, a, a, an early picture of her, but this is the second the second picture over there is when he's getting tired of her. And at that point, she becomes distorted. The, the main thing in that second picture is Picasso's anger, I think. His his uh, sexual disgust, his anger at himself, his anger at the world, and it, it finds expression in a distortion, a deliberate distortion. Of a, look, Picasso could paint, knew how to paint a painting. He knew that this lady wasn't a flounder, and that she didn't have two eyes on the same side of her head. He knew all this type of stuff, and he deliberately transgressed what he knew to express something deep inside of him. And that's basically disgust, yeah. loathing. It's loathing. Now, whether it's self-loathing or loathing of his girlfriend, or which would probably be self-loathing projected onto his girlfriend, that's what it is. That's what you're talking about here. Yeah. And that would sell for $10 million easy. Uh, the, the, the numbers are astronomical right now because of simply the amount of money that's floating around in the pockets of these 
these uh, Wall Street uh, yeah. uh, robber barons. Did you have a hard time finding the actual photograph of uh, Marie Therese there, or did you just happen to come across that in the internet? No, no, it's on it's on the internet. Uh, when I first did this, I went through the Zervos catalog, which is basically the catalog of all of Picasso's works in chronological order. And at that point, this just jumps off the page at you. Okay. You know, up oh, there's the new girlfriend. There she is. Boy, she's kind of cute. Up. Oh, getting tired of her up oh, it's over now here's the new girlfriend yeah that's that, that's what you that's the uh, the uh the trajectory of the zervos catalog okay next picture john oh there's our famous jackson polak uh yeah all right so we already talked about him we can move on dripping away there yeah um yeah all I, right. I picked this out because of john cage um give us some background Okay, now we're back in music, uh, back in music. Um, uh, John Cage. Okay, okay, let's go back here. World War II happened, okay? World War II, uh, I was in Weimar, a world culture city. Looking at, there's a picture of Goethe and Schiller, and then you're walking around beautiful German town. Oh, wait a minute. There's a hole in the ground there. What's that? Why? And the guide tells you, he apologizes. That's box house. Wait a minute. <laughs> why? Why? It was the only place in Weimar that got bombed during World War II. Why did they do that? Well, because Bach was very important for German consciousness and German consciousness the German musical tradition had to be eradicated from the German people. Hmm. Okay, so fast forward to 1973, and I meet a young man. I'm a young man. I meet another young man, and we get together, and we have a we were in a, in a band together, and uh, you know we're playing covers. Covers they were doing covers of the Allman Brothers, and I'm doing songs that I remember from my youth and. It's great. Uh, it, you know, it is what it is. And then, but he's got real musical talent. So he goes to the Robert Schumann Institute and studies composition. And at the Robert Schumann Institute, the first thing they introduce him to is 12-tone music. Mm -hmm. Well, wait a minute. This is, uh, this is what we didn't cover with Schoenberg. We should have covered this with Schoenberg before. But anyway... Uh, what is 12-tone music is a completely unmusical ideology where you basically go through 12 tones in a row and they have to start all over again with a new row. And, and I, uh, I told, uh, uh, but the one thing that he did not learn about, and the one composer whose name was never mentioned at the Robert Schumann Institute was Bach. Hmm. Heiner, Heiner has, has musical talent. There's no question about that. He discovered Bach on his own and he would put on cantatas. He could do all that type of stuff because it was beautiful music. Now, I'm saying to understand these two guys here, especially John Cage, who was in the background there. You have to understand psychological warfare because the Germans were subjected to ruthless psychological warfare after World War II. One of the most famous victims of this psychological warfare was Joseph Ratzinger who imposed it on the church. But that's a whole other story, and we don't have time to get into that. Who uh, was what, doing what, this psychological warfare, Mike? Who was, who was orchestrating it? Who was orchestrating it? The United States government. 
Okay, that's what I there, thought. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, uh, if you want, uh, I mean, I'm dealing with this right now. Uh, after there's this big discussion uh, as the war is winding out, what are we going to do with the German people? And the people who kind of elbowed their way to the head of the ta- the discussion were the Jews, hmm. uh, in particular one Jew. Uh, by the name of Henry Morgenthau, who was the Treasury Secretary for Franklin Delano Roosevelt and had some type of uncanny power over Roosevelt. Mm. And he wanted to exterminate the Jews. His idea was to deindustrialize Germany and basically starve them to death. 20 million Germans will die, but that's okay because they're bad people, according to the Jews. Oh, wait a minute. You said exterminate the Jews. You meant exterminate the Germans. I meant exterminate the Germans. Thank you for correcting that slip of mine. (laughs) I'm so, everyone's so used to hearing the other thing. It just kind of slips into your uh, mind. This, This was stopped, okay, by heroic figures like Herbert Hoover, who said, this is not Christian. We don't want to base our foreign policy on Semitic vengeance. These are the words that were being used at the time. So a new plan comes in. It's called the Marshall Plan. And it seems benign because they're lending money, but it was social engineering of a, a, a much pernicious, uh, ver- more pernicious variety because nobody knew what was going on. And basically they took over the educational system. They took over musical training, which is what I tried to explain to you uh, just re- with my friend uh, Heiner. And so they started these summer programs in Donau Eschingen, which is on the, the Danube. And uh, the Zudvest Rundfunk started uh, broadcasting uh, atonal and 12-tonal music. And uh, so you could get a scholarship. And one of the people who showed up at the Donau Eschingen summer courses was John Cage. Mm. That man in the background, and he had no talent whatsoever, but you didn't need talent at this point. And so his, probably his most famous work is uh, that piano piece where he sits at a piano and does nothing for four minutes. So it's silence for four minutes. This type of outrageous stunts, publicity stunts. Yeah. This is the type. So what you're seeing, again, as I said before, is the long arm of the CIA now promoting psychological warfare against the German people through by destroying their music at summer camps in Donau Eschingen. And this was one of the guys who was basically there to uh, mock uh, the German traditional music uh, and did a good, good job of it. Wow. Now, the, the other guy, the other guy in the picture is Merce Cunningham. He was a, a, a choreographer and dancer. He danced with Martha Graham. If you do the Google search, uh, you go to the YouTube video of Martha Graham before performing Appalachian Spring. Uh, you see uh, Merce Cunningham in the background doing pretty much nothing because uh, Martha Graham is the center of the universe and it's all this female emoting about me and my womb and all this other type of stuff. It's like feminism to music. And Merce Cunningham was the opposite. He was a homosexual, uh, didn't want to stand in there. He had the homosexual view of the world, which is basically that uh, sex is something that is um, sterile, uh, sterile, isolated acts uh, of uh, completely individual actions that lead nowhere. Yeah. So, uh, so Merce Cunningham invented what I, I have children who have been in ballet. I have a son who's been in ballet for 20 years now. And invariably when they get the new works, it is invariably the sex robot dance. Mm. 
And Merce Cunningham has the distinction of creating the sex robot dance. Uh, basically, he said one point that his idea of beauty was that picture of that man in space just floating off in space. So it's completely disjointed. It's completely uh, random. I guess that's the word. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like uh, people are walking along the sidewalk and the light turns red and they stop, you know, like you're in Manhattan. And then the light turns green and they start walking in. This is his idea of mimesis. This is the type of thing strained through the mind of someone who is a homosexual, who is at war with nature, the nature that he's trying to imitate. Yeah. Okay. Next picture, John. Now, this is a uh, from a German performance of Moses Schoenberg's uh, opera, Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron is a 12-tone opera. It premiered in Berlin in 1954. Everybody hated it. And to discover, disguise the fact that everybody hated it, the producer accused all of the Germans of being anti-Semites because they didn't like the ballet, uh, the opera, which is, it, it's insufferable. It's intolerable. I did this. I listened. I used to drive to Philadelphia on a regular basis. And uh, usually the music makes the drive go faster. You put this on, I listened to the whole damn thing and it took, it seemed like an eternity mm. to get to Philadelphia. This is what happens. It's so painful. That, and, and at that point, some rabbi came in from Berlin and said, no, no, it's a crappy piece of music. Don't call it anti-Semitism because people don't like it. So at least the rabbi had a little bit of, of sense here. It's 12 tone music, but this is penance. What, what is going on here? Well, the Germans are bad people. The Holocaust. This is the Holocaust. Mm. They, if it weren't for the Holocaust, no one would ever perform Moses and Aaron. But now the Germans have to do it on a regular basis. This is a fairly new production, obviously, as penance for the Holocaust. That's, that's the explanation of this piece. There's no other explanation. Yeah. What's the woman doing there? Is she naked and back? It's yeah, bad. there's there's a... This is the, uh, obviously there's the golden calf scene. It's Moses and Aaron. And so there's supposed to be an orgy there of mm-hmm. worshiping before the golden calf. I think that's what's part of this. Uh, there are probably uh, see, uh, performances of this where uh, you have a lot of naked Germans running around, uh, which is something they do on a regular basis. Uh, but it, it, in order, uh, in many ways, the naked women are, are a relief, a welcome relief from this god awful music. At least you have something. <laughs> at least there's something attractive on the stage, you know. Yeah. Uh, All right. Next picture, John. I want to go a little faster here because I don't know. This is Kandinsky. Kandinsky, this is the man. Now, he did this kind of stuff, but he's the one who said art can't progress unless it's uh, uh, consciously imitating nature. So he knew this in spite of the fact that he did this kind of art. So I don't see any imitation of nature here. So it's (laughs) as a triangle. Oh, okay. Uh, Okay. There's an oval. I look, what does this mean? I don't know. Is this something where you're supposed to scratch your head and say, I don't understand it, but somebody smarter than I must understand it because it's on the wall of a museum, right? Yeah, that's right. Must be. <laughs> okay. All right. Next picture. Ah, Gershwin, the painter. 
Yeah, now that's mimesis. That looks like Schoenberg. Mm. So he was a talented guy. The the uh, the famous story is all of these uh, Schoenberg ended up in in Hollywood. A lot, the Jews who were escaping uh, went to Hollywood. It was the Paradisus Judaeorum during the 1940s. Uh, Schoenberg loved to play tennis, and so did Gershwin. So the story is that uh, you know they're playing, and finally the game's over, and Gershwin goes to uh, Schoenberg and heard about his reputation as a famous composer and says, you know, I'd like to have you give me lessons. And uh, so Schoenberg says to Gershwin, well, how much money do you earn a year? And then Gershwin tells him, and then Schoenberg says, well, maybe I should take lessons from you. That's the story. That's the Schoenberg. So obviously Gershwin did not follow down the path of Schoenberg. Thank God. Thank God he didn't. Uh, there's a, the crucial turning point in 20th century music is something that was mentioned by George Antile. And he said, uh, when the first jazz band arrived in Paris in 1919, everybody heaved a big sigh of relief because if we had to listen to one more piece by Schoenberg, we all, were, we all would have committed suicide. <laughs> so that is the turning point. So... Schoenberg jumped in at the tail end of Dionysian music. His uh, Verklärte Nacht was an imitation, a smeared version of Tristan und Isolde. And at this point, the sexual liberation jumped from classical music over to Negro jazz. Mm. And that's where, that's where Schoenberg picked it up, obviously influenced by jazz, did some very likable pieces. Uh, Porgy and Bess is now part of the repertoire uh, the operatic repertoire. I think it deserves a place there, uh, but that's the change that took place here. That's by Schoenberg. I didn't realize that. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. What's by Schoenberg? Are you talking about Porky and Bess? Who no, was, no. Who? Porky and Bess is Gershwin. No, Schoenberg oh, would Gershwin. never do anything okay. like that. All right. That's what I thought. <laughs> okay. All right. Next picture. All right. Here we go. Pope Pius X put a stop to a lot of things. Tell us about it. Well, the most important thing he did in this regard is issue a motu proprio on sacred music. Hmm. So he was an Italian uh, uh, conversant in all of Italian culture, uh, especially the music, uh, a very educated cultured person, in many ways uh, like a successor to Federico Borromeo, uh, who was the cousin of Carlo, Bar nephew of Carlo Borromeo, who basically saved sacred art for uh, the West at a crucial moment at the time of the Reformation when the Protestants were heading toward iconoclasm and the Italians were heading toward pornography. Mm. But Pius the, the uh, Pius the 10th is now right around the time of Les Damsel d'Avignon, mm. uh, completely different worlds. But I think that uh, he can see that there's turmoil in the art world. This is a precursor mm. to a larger type of cultural turmoil over the horizon. Mm. And he feels he's got to say something about music. And he comes up with a really good uh, description of uh, sacred music, and uh, which acts as a bulwark against modernity by stating the principle. So the, this is uh, his modernist oath his attack on modernism, I think, came out the same year that uh, Picasso's Damsel d'Avignon came out, which is also the same year that uh, 
Thomas Mann's Death in Venice came out. Oh, this is the type of, this is the church responding in some type of uh, paternal way as the, the conserver of European culture by stating the principles of sacred music. In your so, opinion, Mike, uh, how far did Pius X's stop of modernity um, uh, take effect? I mean, in, into what years can we see definite inroads by the church into stopping modernity? And then all of a sudden, of course, it takes off, modernity does, and it becomes it takes on a life of its own. How, how much of an influence in decades do you think Pius X really had? I think I think Jacques Maritain was uh, very influenced by him. Uh, he wrote a book called his first book was Anti-Modern. He was full of zeal at this point. He was a convert. He converted away from Bergson. He became a Thomist at this point. He was associating with Gary Gould Lagrange, and he was full of zeal for for Thomism at this point. So I had to think it had an influence there <clears throat> in France, which is where the the Thomistic the neo-Thomistic movement really took off. It was more a creation of Leo XIII, especially his encyclical Eterni Patris, than it was Pius X. Uh, but I think it had an effect, and I think it uh, lasted up until uh, Second Vatican Council. And I think the man who killed it was Joseph Ratzinger. <laughs> I wonder, said, I wonder what Picasso would have uh, thought of Pius X if he knew that Pius was trying to stop him in his tracks. Do you think he was that alert? No, no, they lived in completely different worlds. I mean, Picasso is some disreputable bohemian from the, uh, you know, from Paris. Uh, yeah, in total he was, he rebellion. Catholic, he was a Catholic. Of course he was. He was a Catholic who was to in total rebellion against the Catholic faith and was putting it into his artwork. And so I think that Pius X, first of all, he would have never seen this type of stuff. I, 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 who would have known this, that this was going on? Certainly not Pius X. If he had seen it, he would have been appalled by it. It would have struck him as barbaric. Yeah. Uh, and this is a man, it is, it's deliberately barbaric. Of course it is. You got the baboon face on the one lady and you got the African mask on the other. It's deliberately transgressive and barbaric yeah. because he wants to overthrow the norms of uh, European culture that the Pope is trying to preserve. Yeah. <laughs> so and they're completely at odds with each other. Picasso wasn't as popular at, during this time, so Pius X probably never even... No, they, he would have never heard of him. No, he yeah. never would have heard of him at all. Yeah. And if he had, it would have been, you know, my son, why are you rebelling against the Catholic faith? You know, you need to go to confession or something. You know, obviously yeah. the, the proper response for somebody like Picasso. One of Picasso's earliest paintings, at 18-something, uh, he painted the girl receiving her first communion. Do you, right. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I have. He he knew how to do realistic paintings. He yeah. didn't. He didn't. He didn't want. To, he didn't want to put in the effort. He could have done it. He could have worked on his talent. This, this is something that comes out later, uh, especially when we deal with somebody like Leonard Bernstein, yeah. who basically uh, had some type of talent and suddenly at some point realized, hey, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I, I think I'd rather be a superstar conductor because I have the adulation of the man. I get on television. Uh, and so he just never really pr progressed as a, as a composer. Yeah. I uh, the same thing. Same th <laughs> right. 
So the, the same thing was true of Picasso. He hated, he used to do imitations of people that he knew he couldn't excel at anymore. And that is precisely what happened to Leonard Bernstein when the Kennedys commissioned a mass. I mean, uh, he had done- We're gonna get to that in a second. Okay, here. all right. Oh, I'm John, which pictures? All That's right. Jacques Maritain. All right, there's your As man. a young man. Uh, associating, doing Thomist uh, seminars with Gary Lagrange in Paris, and then concluding that uh, Europe was like uh, of uh, Byzantium when the Turks were overrunning it and decided to take the sacred vessels across the ocean to America, where he became a fixture of Catholic life uh, at places like University of Notre Dame and Princeton. Okay. All right. So do I remember you saying about Maritain in this section that he wasn't really a Thomist? No, he wasn't. Neither yeah. neither he nor Gilson. I go into more detail in Gilson. But Gilson, the most famous Thomist of the 20th century, probably, is not a Thomist when it comes to aesthetics. He's a Platonist. I was stunned, stunned. When I, I, I was reading his book and I said, I can't believe my eyes here. I can't believe what I am reading. This guy is not a Thomist. I thought, I'm going to call up Ralph McInerney. <laughs> Ralph had been dead for 10 years at this point. You know, he was the only guy I could think of talking to because huh. he, knew, he knew these people. He knew these people personally. He was the head of the Maritan Institute. This was totally shocking to me. Uh -huh. Totally shocking. Uh, okay. Let's go on a little bit here. We got we got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, do you want to say anything about him? This is Stravinsky, great composer, absolutely great composer. Is that Nikki in the background? That's Nikki Nabokov, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's Nikki. He was a crucial. He was the the cousin of Vladimir Nabokov, who wrote Lolita, uh, Success de Scandal. He was a Russian aristocrat, and he was a friend of Stravinsky. And Stravinsky was a very serious composer who was caught in the middle of the culture wars. At this point, it was known as the Cold War. And the, the simple fact was, uh, who was going to produce the better music? Was it America? Because we had this freedom to express ourselves and drip all over canvases. Or was it going to be those evil uh, commies in Russia uh, where Stalin jumps in and tells Shostakovich how to compose his next symphony. That's the contest. That was the contest. And Nikki confronted uh, Shostakovich at one of their uh, Congress of Cultural Freedom. No, it was the commie event. And he confronted there, became a hero and got brought into the CIA at that point. Uh, Tchaikovsky always uh, intrigues me because was he a symbol of a deeper musical talent in Russia or was he just an enigma that came out of nowhere? He's a genius. He's he's one of the great geniuses of I mean, he's one of the great geniuses of all time in music. And he's also a, a, a complete expression of the depth of the Russian soul hmm. where you, you you are not afraid of your emotions. You can just throw your emotions right out there. They were uh, organized. Uh, he was a master of mimesis. Hmm. Uh, he created last. I mean, he created basically the ballet as we understand it today, which is basically uh, four Russian masterpieces by Tchaikovsky. The mm -hmm. only reason my son is a ballet dancer is because his older sister dragged him to performances of the Nutcracker, which is mm -hmm. a holiday ritual. 
mm-hmm. of deep of deep significance because it's a, an expression of the nostalgia that we all feel about these lost worlds that existed before the before the revolution. Okay, next picture, John. Uh, who is this guy? Ezra um, Pound. Ezra Pound, yeah. One we of your are, heroes, we, right? We are jumping around all over the place here. Yeah, I'm just following your pages, buddy. <laughs> you know, don't blame it on there, me. There's a lot of text in between these pictures here. Yeah, <laughs> I know, but I can't, I can't photograph the, the text. I can only photograph the pictures. <laughs> Yeah, so this is Ezra Pound. He was a, 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 a brash American who showed up in London. He's got a flaming head of red hair. He lived in Philadelphia. I have a fantasy. He's basically a contemporary. My grandfather, I have a fantasy of my grandfather bumping into Ezra Pound on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, probably didn't happen, but it could have happened. So he goes to London and he meets uh, T.S. Eliot, another uh expatriate american expatriate london is the the center of the literary world at this point because we're talking about the period immediately preceding and following world war one and he basically orchestrates one of the great reforms of poetic language in the history of the english uh, uh po- english english poetry comparable to the reform of language that uh, uh wordsworth and coleridge did at the beginning of the 19th century just tell us in 25 words or less what reform, what had to be reformed, and, and how do we recognize Well, uh, so in the aftermath of World War I, uh, everyone's feeling disillusioned. So who would, what was poetry, uh, what would poetry be at this period of time? Period, it could be Rudyard Kipling. Uh, Rudyard Kipling was the opposite of what these people wanted. It could be Tennyson, it could be any of these people, where they had a kind of flowery discourse of the sort that was, you would say, let's say Dryden was uh, earlier and Wordsworth said, nobody talks that way anymore, I'm going to have to do something else. Well, this is what Ezra Pound and Eliot did in the 20th century. Nobody talks that way anymore. You may talk a gin and beer when you're quartered safe out here and said to penny fights and Alder shot it. But when it comes to slaughter, you will do your work on water and lick the blooming boots of him that's got it. Now, in India's sunny clime, where I used to spend me time, a servant of Her Majesty the Queen, the finest man I knew in all that blackface crew was a regimental bistie. Gunga Dean. <laughs> now that's great poetry. I mean, uh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that from reading it as a child. It's still in my memory. It's just, it, it's, it's poetry, but yeah. nobody, nobody wants to talk about British imperialism in, anymore, especially when you come to lines like for all his bloody eyed, he was white, clear white inside. Well, you're not going to get that at the seminar, the poetry seminar at the university anymore. You know, it's it's a, a, an era that had basically had faded. You now had Bloomsbury, you had sexual decadence, you had people who didn't want to carry the white man's burden anymore. Hmm. Uh, this is a reality. And Pound and Elliot basically tried to remember what I said. My my Mises is imitation of nature. So if you're imitating nature now, you're, ta- you're imitating the way people talk, the lives they lead, and you come up with something like the wasteland or 
before that. This is before, again, this is that ma magical year, 1907, when Picasso did Les Damsel d'Avignon, uh, 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 T.S. Eliot writes the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock when he goes out in the evening sky, etherized like a patient on a table. Wow, nobody, that's not Kipling, I guarantee you. That's that's something completely different. And there were people who felt, well, this is this is my Mises. Hmm. We're not, we're now talking about the world we live in right now with motor cars and and bombs and trenches and poison gas and all this type of disruption to the to European culture. And that's what the wasteland was. That's what it was. And that's why it's important because again, art is mimesis. And this was much closer to the realities than those uh, Victorian poets. Good, good, good show. All right, tell us a little bit about Ezra's run-in with the Jews. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to Ezra. That's the Nazi salute, isn't it? Yeah, next picture, John. So I think this is Ezra being, so Ezra uh, hated capitalism. God bless his soul. I hate it too. Another, <laughs> another Philadelphia boy who hates capitalism. Uh, and so he decided to put his, he loved Italian culture. I love Italian culture. So he went to Italy and he got swept up uh, with Mussolini. Hmm. And he thought Mussolini was a great man. And uh, this was the era of quadragesimo anno. This is the aftermath of the stock market crash of 1929 when uh, everybody's disillusioned with capitalism and you have uh, Aminatori Fanfani writing his critique of capitalism. And now Mussolini's going to put his money where his mouth is and we have corporatism and Pound liked it. And then he made the mistake of starting doing uh, propaganda broadcast during World War II and that he ran afoul of the government. So when the allies came and they caught him in Rapallo, they took him up and put him in a cage mm. uh, and left him in a cage for a while. And they ended up bringing him back to America and they put him in a mental hospital because anybody who could do something like that was absolutely crazy. Now, St. Elizabeth, they put him in. That's right. That's exactly what it was. And he would he was there and people would come. He had followers who understood his genius and would come and talk to him. And eventually he got released. And at this point, uh, so this is where I enter on the scene. OK, this is the, the high water mark of literary criticism in the 20th century. It is inspired by people like T.S. Eliot, who wrote his own literary criticism, a good uh, critique of the metaphysical poets and stuff like that. And it's 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 serious. It's serious business. And I understood it. And I decided I'm going to study English at the, at the university. Mm. And I get there just at this moment where there is a big civil war, uh, the beginning of the culture wars. And I had a front row seat and it was basically over Ezra Pound. Mm. And guess who didn't like Ezra Pound? Now, take a wild guess. Um, that English professor. Um What's his name? Stanley Fish. Oh, Stanley, Stanley, Stanley yeah. Fish uh, was, yeah, he was my professor in graduate school at Temple. He was literary theory, and it was clear that he hated the new criticism. And what was the principle of the new criticism? Basically, that the art is uh, simply uh, the sovereign. It's a work of art. It is a, uh, a piece of either it's well-constructed or it's not, and that's the end of the story. That is not what the Jews believed. The Jews were all involved with 
socialist realism on one part or another, either in music or in art or in poetry. And I gave you one of the examples of that, that ridiculous poem about the, the hand grenade of the sun, you know, that type of thing, propaganda. So it's basically, so I don't care what, how skilled a poet Ezra Pound was, he was a fascist and uh, he collaborated with people like Mussolini who collaborated with Hitler, he's a bad person. And so we should not read him anymore at the university. That mm -hmm. was the battle mm -hmm. and the Jews won. Mm -hmm. And the result was the, the mess that we have now, where it's basically you have these inferior writers uh, being promoted simply because they are the, the color of their skin or the fact that they have a uterus or because they're homosexuals, uh, because that's the most important thing. And poetry as a skill just goes down the drain. Exactly yeah. analogous to the abandonment of mimesis that took place in the visual arts uh, uh, a generation earlier. Do you think, Mike, uh, in your study of literature, that poetry is like art, where the artist has to go to Italy to be a good artist? He has to learn how to be a good artist. Uh, is poetry like that, where you can learn how no. to be a poet, or is no. this just innate? Just innate? No. <laughs> There's a famous saying, Oeta Nasitur. Poets are born. Mm. This, is, this is the paradox. There are people who come into this world who can just kind of rhyme, they just have that sense of language. Uh, it's innate. I, I really think it's innate. That's what everyone says. Painting is not innate. It takes a long period of study to learn how to use that brush, how to use these techniques. It's the exact opposite of poetry. Mm -hmm. And you have all kinds of people, like uh, Bob Dylan. He won the Nobel Prize for poetry. You can listen to his music, uh, Johnny's Johnny's in the basement mixing up some medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. Look out, kid, they keep it all hid. Better jump. Now, this is a man that just has a, a knack for putting words together. Problem with this is it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and to, in order to have great poetry, you have to have that brilliant kind of wordplay and it has to rhyme and it has to have the right meter and it's yeah. got to make sense too. Yeah. And if you just, sometimes you just have one or the other. So with, when you have this socialist realist poetry, it is horrible. You know, it doesn't scan, it doesn't rhyme for the most part, but your heart's in the right place and you want to blow up capitalism. So God bless you. That's great poetry now. <laughs> uh, other, he, go ahead. Uh, let's, let's skip this one. It's just another Polak piece of crap. All right. Here's your man, Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> okay. So now we're in po post-World War II New York. And New York is now the center of the universe uh, because America won the war. And uh, it's the center of the artistic universe and the center of the musical universe. Okay, but there are certain rules now. If to be uh, performed, to get your piece performed in New York City, you have to be a Jew, a commie, and a queer. <laughs> now, now, the best chance you have is if you're all three. <laughs> And then you'll be someone like Mark Blitzstein. Now, you hum a few tunes from Mark Blitzstein, will you? No, you can't. Nobody knows who Mark Blitzstein is. But he was a Jew. 
he was a commie and he was a queer. And he ended up, he died doing what he loved when he tried to pick up some sailor in the Caribbean and the guy killed him, beat him to death. So this is the type of uh, stuff that was going on. And this is the world that Bernstein entered. Now, when he started off, there were no Jewish conductors. I think there was one. Uh, and so you had to become a kind of European and he did his apprenticeship there. But by the time he became a uh, conductor of the New York Philharmonic, the Jews had taken over the the world now this is a different generation of jews than say rick rubin who created hip-hop okay uh this is a guy who had definitely had musical talent he was a great teacher uh he could really give great lectures on art and he did this uh, uh children's concerts explaining music he was good at that you know uh but as a home he, he struggled against the homosexuality he married this uh uh, Hispanic actress. He had children by her, but there was always this kind of tug. And when the 60s finally arrived, he could simply, he had a, everyone had a license to act out their sexual, uh, perverted sexual desires, and he did, and he basically succumbed and never recovered. And he never recovered. Too, right? He divorced yeah, they, they, they ended up being divorced. He moved in with his boyfriend, and that lasted for a little while. But before he did that, he did uh, West Side Story, which yeah. is his, his great achievement. It's it's okay. It is like that's New York. That was New York in the 1950s. It is what it is. It's not box mass. It's not uh, the Ninth Symphony by Beethoven because that's not the culture that we have here. You know, it's like uh, taking Gershwin. You know, let's take him a little bit farther. It's jazz. You're influenced by jazz. It's kind of this mixture of jazz and classical motifs. It's original. It is what it is. It was, it was, it came together. Everything came together. He did the, uh, the choreography was Jerome Robbins. whose real name was Rabinowitz. Um, Stephen Sondheim uh, did uh, the lyrics. They're brilliant lyrics. Absolutely brilliant. The, uh, the, the, uh, for uh, that, uh, uh, I forget the name of the song, but anyway, one of the lines is, that Puerto Rican punkle go down, and when he hollers uncle, we'll go on the top. Well, that's dairy, you know, rhyming punkle yeah, yeah. and uncle. That's funny. <laughs> that's clever. And, and he's he's a kind of brilliant kind of uh, lyricist who eventually went on to write music of his own, some of which is very good, like the uh, Send in the Clowns, a very good song. Yeah. But anyway, it all came together. That, it is what it is. That's the great achievement of the 1950s Jewish art world. And it's not much. I mean, it right. is what it is. All right. There's a there's a more of a story to Leonard. So let's move on. Next picture. Okay. So he becomes. Uh, well, this is uh, Lenny and Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Lenny copied Aaron Copeland shamelessly. If you uh, read, if you listen to Candide, uh, it's Salon Mexico. Just lifting it shamelessly. Lifted. Uh, Shostakovich, he, he just was too lazy and too narcissistic to come up with his own music. Well, you That's mentioned Aaron three, other, Cohen. three other songs Aaron Copeland, West Side Story that he uh, plagiarized. Right, yeah. But let's not, let's not be picky about it. It's a great, it's a good you know, musical, let's go on. Everybody everybody picks up someone something from someone else. So but it is what it is, okay? Okay. <laughs> Next picture. Okay, now this is where it starts to go bad. 
Okay, there's Lenny. Lenny is an absolute superstar, and he can hang out with Jackie. Jackie O, at this point, the former wife of uh, uh, former John wife Henry. of John F. Kennedy. Uh, uh, so he's he's at the top of the world. Unfortunately, he's now succumbed to his homosexual behavior. Uh, the the glow from West Side Story is fading rapidly. And so what do this stupid Kennedy family, I don't want to denigrate the Kennedy family, but they don't know what they're doing. And they come to Lenny and say, we'd like you to do a mass. Well, wait a minute. Why are you asking a Jew to compose for a mass? Now, okay, let's let's go back up here. What about Bach? He was a Protestant. Well, he and he wrote a brilliant mass, but that's Bach. And Protestants are different than Jews. Okay, so Lenny uh, accepts it, and then suddenly he's faced with this moment of dread. Now, this is me speculating, okay, but I think this is what happened. He woke up one morning and he said, "Oh shit! Why did I say yes? What what did I what did I get myself into? Do you mean a mass like the one that Bach wrote, or the one that Beethoven wrote, or the one that Mozart wrote, or the one that Vival? I, what did I get myself into here? I have to go toe to toe now with the greatest geniuses in musical history. I can't do that. Mm. And so, what did he do? What was the default setting? What did he do basically to distract everyone from the fact that he did not have the talent to write a mass? He engaged in blasphemy. And that's precisely what Bernstein's mass is. And you can go read the book. You, I don't want to go into the details here, but that's what it is. And th that's what he did. And suddenly the, everybody shows up. It's the Lincoln Center. It's the premiere. And suddenly everybody's thinking, Am I seeing what I think I'm seeing here? And they're afraid to say anything because this is the Kennedy family. It's Leonard Bernstein and it's blasphemy. And that was, that's it. That was his legacy. That's what he reverted. The inner Jew asserted itself and the inner Jew invariably gravitates toward pornography and blasphemy. And so that's where he ended up. Yeah. Uh, next picture, John, I think it might be about Bernstein. I'm not sure. No. Okay. So we're done with Bernstein. All right. So who do we have here? Gauguin. Gauguin. Self-portrait. Yeah. yeah. You want to say anything about him? No, don't want to say anything. About, I mean, it's, it's uh, a little bit of my Mises here. Right. We're talking, let's go, let's go ahead to uh, Philip Roth. We've already yeah. gone there. Now this is, remember I told you about the takeover. Mm -hmm. The Jewish takeover of literary criticism, it was preceded by the Jewish takeover of literature. And this is the man who did it. This is Philip Roth. Uh, he's on top of the world because he just wrote a book called Portnoy's Complaint, which is a, oh, a, a book about masturbation, about Jewish Jew, Jew involved in masturbation. Again, per, completely Jewish because it is completely transgressive. Uh, the Jews can, are really good at transgressing. Uh, they don't. They don't sit and learn. It's uh, uh, actually. Let, let me take that back here. Roth, as a young man, basically was involved in that same literary criticism that attracted me. He was a literary man. He went to Bucknell. Uh, didn't know that you don't put uh, uh, lemon and cream in tea when they offer it to you. He was that kind of guy. 
uh, had to learn all that type of stuff, became a kind of wasp writer. And then he finally decided he didn't want to be a wasp anymore. And he became the Jew when he wrote Portnoy's Complaint. And that was a success disgandal that opened the, the 1969 is when it came out. And it basically opened the door to the takeover, the Jewish takeover of our culture, yeah. which found this culmination when I was uh, in yeah. graduate school with the Jewish takeover of literary criticism and the expulsion of Ezra Pound from the pantheon of poetry. Isn't, isn't it true that each of these guys had to make that decision if they were going to cross the line into pornography, whether it's pictures or writing or whatever it is, as opposed to staying on the civil society of life? But once they made that jump, they went whole hog and they made a lot of money, basically. Yeah, um, that's why that's why they did it. Yeah, they they. they this is this is a, a Jewish uh, what should I Jewish virtue, being being transgressive. Mm -hmm. They feel good about themselves. They only feel good about themselves when they're transgressing some type of boundary and and dumbfounding the goyim by their audacity or what they would call chutzpah. Yeah, chutzpah. Chutzpah. Yeah, and you have to make yourself stick out. You you have to be uh, you know something that everybody wants to look at. And that ain't going to happen if you're like everybody else. Well, you, you reach diminishing returns after a while. I mean, what are you going to do? How many boundaries are left to transgress? What's it going to be now? <laughs> yeah, I think that's where we are right now. All right, next picture. All right, John Updike. Yep. He, he got caught uh, uh, in, he was the great novelist. Uh, obviously, wasp. We're talking about wasp culture, and he realized he used to joke with uh, John Cheever, saying that we're the only two non-Jewish writers left. <laughs> the Jewish takeover of fiction it was complete at that point, and the man who capitulated totally to this was uh, William Styron, who started off as a Southern novelist, as the heir of William Faulkner, and ended up being a Jewish novelist when he wrote. Sophie's Choice, which is a last thing he wrote and uh, a real uh, piece of uh, Holocaust propaganda. Yeah. Okay, next picture. <clears throat> uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick. Right. Transgressive films. Yeah. Uh, breaking down the barriers around the same time. Yeah. Um. What was the what was the real message of this film here, Clockwork Orange? Well, uh, Burgess, I, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that basically Stanley Kubrick took it over and appropriated something that was supposed to be it was supposed to be a protest against social engineering or Watsonian behaviorism, where you can eradicate evil by conditioning people like this by you know making I think they're making him watch violence and pornography. Yeah, at this point. Uh, to basically, uh, and and uh, I don't know, I, I forget, were they shocking his genitals? So everyone's uh, supposed to have... They, they, um, they loaded him up with nauseating chemicals that made him sick. So when he looked at the uh, pornography or the violence, he got sick at the same time he saw pleasure. And they thought right. the mixture of these would deter him from doing it again. Yeah, so that's that's what uh, Burgess is complaining about. It's this uh, Watsonian behaviorism, which is stupid and it doesn't work on human yeah. beings. All right. 
but uh, Kubrick turned it into basically an attack on German music. <laughs> Beethoven. A little, oh. little old Ludwig van. Let's live in some of that Ludwig van. And so you, you're kicking oh. the guy. They're playing a, a beautiful piece of Beethoven's music and you're kicking the guy in his crotch or something like that. This is this is Kubrick, Kubrick being transgressive here and again expressing hatred of the culture that he could not equal, just like Bernstein. You know, you'll never you'll never be able to produce something as beautiful as Beethoven. And so instead of trying and failing, let's just ridicule him and do blasphemy and transgressive films instead. Was Turning Beethoven into a Nazi. Is the Pope Italian? Okay. <laughs> Sometimes you just don't know, Mike. <laughs> and here, all this time, I thought it was a tribute to Beethoven. My gosh. Yeah, I was on the wrong track there. Okay. Watch it again. <laughs> Next picture. So we're we're at sixty-two of seventy-eight. So we're we're doing good, but we're going to have to go fast here. So this is photography. Photography is a Jewish creation. So this is it. It's art because the Jew did it. This is ridiculous. He walks around taking pictures of people on the sidewalk, and because he's got a camera, so the Jew is good at pressing a button, and then they call it art. Because art, because the Jew said it, and because another Jew hung it in some type of gallery or museum. Yeah. yeah. This is the antithesis of mimesis. This is not mimesis. So mimesis is not photography at all, or can you have good photography that's mimesis? All right, if you look at the latest issue of Culture Wars magazine, there is a photo on the cover that comes very close to being art for reasons I go into elsewhere. But basically, uh, so it, it, this is, I'm standing with my wife at one of the most beautiful houses in California, a green and green bungalow. Uh, the sun is going down. The Pacific Ocean is in the background. There's a tree. So you've got God's nature, which is God is an artist, or there's Logos there. You've got a man who clearly tried to imitate that nature by building a house that fit in perfectly with the environment. You've got two human beings uh, in a relationship with each other, and you've got the sun going down, illuminating, unifying the scene. And uh, my friend Allegra pressed the button at exactly the right moment, and she captured that moment. She's The genius was... She knew when to press the button. This guy doesn't know when to press the button. So she pressed the button at the right time, and it has that type of unity uh, and beauty that we would associate with art. So I'm going to concede that, but I'm saying that the, what's really the, the, the at work here is the mind of Allegra, who knew when to press the button and knew how to aim the camera. That's right. where the mimesis comes in. Okay. Next picture, John. Oh, Maplethorpe. Robert Maplethorpe, okay, the man who made homosexuality mainstream, uh, Catholic boy from Ozone Park, corrupted by the Jews uh, who ran the art world, uh, succumbed to his homosexual passions and ended up just taking pictures of deviant behavior in sex clubs. <laughs> All right, next picture. Okay, this is Matilda Krim. 
she is uh, receiving the uh, what's Freedom Medal from Bill Clinton. Her great achievement in life was sleeping with Lyndon Johnson <laughs> uh, at a crucial moment in history because the Israelis had just launched the attack on the Liberty, the ship, the Liberty. Uh, yeah. And basically, she was there to distract him with her sexual charms. So, damn it, I think she deserves that medal for sleeping with <laughs> Lyndon Johnson. She then became the AIDS czarina and became uh, basically looted. Mapplethorpe died of AIDS. Okay. Uh, and she swooped and he made he mentioned in his will that he did not want any money to go to an AIDS foundation. He just wanted to help young photographers. She swooped in and just stole the money from Mapplethorpe's estate and uh, put it in her AIDS foundation coffers. That that's and this was part of the uh, attempt to uh, basically mainstream homosexual behavior. Mapplethorpe is the man who came up for the imagery that allowed the government to mainstream homosexual behavior. Because before that, it was it was furtive guys who were hanging around men's rooms or picking you up in, while you were hitchhiking, <laughs> trying to get home from the, the senior prom or something like that. Just seedy people, you know, pathetic yeah. people. But he yeah. turned them into heroic figures. And yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's what happened there. That's what I wanted you to say about Mapplethorpe. Yeah. That's that's his uh, calling card. You know, Mike, uh, only you can see um, the attack on the USS Liberty and Johnson's um, very successful attempt to cover it up. At the same time, he's making love to uh, Matilda here uh, and put those two together <laughs> in the same sentence. And give That's us right. the history of the United States. Yeah. I mean, it's, only it's, you can do that. Yeah, my, it's my charism. <laughs> Talk about a special talent of poetry. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, next picture. Um, Terry Eagleton. Yeah, Terry Eagleton got, uh, he was the literary, he's a Marxist literary critic who basically uh, hated formalism, uh, as all Marxists do, felt that Eliot and Pound and those people, the new critics, were formalist. There is an element, uh, it just he's it, to a certain extent right. The problem with new criticism is that it did degenerate into formalism, and it became sterile because it just lost contact with uh, history and biography. So yes, it is. If you have a poem by John Donne, it is like a, a very meticulous uh, watch by some guy in Switzerland. And it's got all these moving parts. It's incredibly complicated. And you could spend your uh, whole class, literary class, just picking apart the, the way those little wheels all run together. But that's really not, uh, 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 that's not all that poetry is. And they kind of missed the boat and they spent too much time spending too much uh, these minute ahistorical analyses. And the time came along uh, and when the Jews uh, orchestrated their uprising, it was Eagleson was uh, part of it because he was a Marxist. Most Jews, he's a Catholic boy. He wrote a memoir about how he used to serve at mass. And then it, uh, what happens to all Catholic boys? How do they go from being older boys to flaming Marxists? Well, the answer is 
through sexual revolution. That's exactly what happened to Terry Eagle. He lost the faith because he got involved in screwing too many, uh, you know, girls at the communist meetings and so on and so forth. Well, he was uh, married, by the way. Yeah. So uh, there's a, a story we've I've told many times uh, before, and so he ended up basically uh, going to Oxford or, or was it Cambridge or Oxford, one of those places. And urging, you know, this is serious. We have the class struggle. We need to participate. Well, wait a minute, Terry. If you're really serious about it, why are you talking about poetry then? Pick up a gun, buddy. Where is your AK-47? Go down and gun down the capitalist exploiters. Well, he could never figure that one out. And so he ended up having debates with uh, Roger Scruton, uh, kind of two sides of the same coin, English coin, uh, you know, kind of superficial. Uh, both of them missed the boat in one way or the other. That's probably the pinnacle of being a uh, literary uh, intellectual is to be the professor of English at Oxford University. I mean, how much higher can you go? I mean, well, that's, you... That, well, that's, that's the problem, though. At a certain point, uh, at a certain point, uh, nobody started took poetry seriously anymore at a certain point they you know who you know you know who wrecked literature i'll tell you it was feminist composition teachers hmm. kids would show up at college and they invariably got some feminist who was teaching them composition and they as soon as they had to deal with this lady who would basically grade you on your ideas rather than your ability to write. They said, I don't want to have anything to do with literature whatsoever. I'm out of here. Anything but literature. And the whole thing collapsed and it doesn't exist anymore. You know what, Mike? I can tell you a story. When I was a freshman at George Washington University, I took composition and the teacher was a feminist woman. And um, she told me probably midway through the class, Sanjanis, you can't write and you never will be able to write. <laughs> <laughs> honey, at this point you say, honey, let me see something you've written. <laughs> but let's put your cards on the table, honey. Let's see uh, what you've written. Gosh, it's funny that you mentioned that because I vividly remember that scene. I mean, it's something you'll never forget the rest of your life. Yeah. And now you just put wings to it and i can see what it all means and where it all comes from thank you so much all right next picture there's stanley fish uh, there's your fish guy yeah. my friend my professor in college looking up into the realm of platonic forms <laughs> uh, all right let's skip them let's go on go ahead next picture aldous huxley aldous huxley okay i don't know why he's here very important figure. Brave New World is a very important book because this is the beginning of uh, the introduction of forms of covert control, like drugs, uh, like sexual liberation, all of these things. He was ahead of his time. And if you want to read about wh where, uh, where it began, uh, read Brave New World. Very important book. Yeah. It's a very thin book, too. It's not much there. Uh, so it's not like you get bogged down reading it. It was uh, much more prescient than 1984 yeah. because uh, Huxley was plugged into the establishment that was at Tavistock and places like that, came over here and promoted LSD and, and all sorts of, he was a guru in, yeah. in the 1950s, clearly a guru. 
Plus that title, Brave New World. I mean, you can't get much better than that. <laughs> well, that's Shakespeare. That's that's what Miranda says in The Tempest. Huh. Oh, Brave New World. That's what she referred That's America. Huh. Okay. Well, I'll learn something every day. Okay, next picture, please. Okay, uh, critical race theory. Um, that's that's where it went down the drain. This is Noel Ignatieff. He was the Jew who came up with critical race theory, which is a totally Jewish operation uh, of the sort. It just blew up. He probably noticed the explosion last week with Kyrie Irving. Yeah. And the ADL condemning Kyrie Irving, the ADL blowing up the best operation the Jews ever had, which was basically the Black Jewish Alliance. This is the father of Black Lives Matter, uh, all of that type of stuff. Uh, and uh, the ADL just blew it up. Shows you I thought, the, I thought uh, you had said that they had already started to blow up in the 1970s. It blew up in 67, if you want the actual date. That's what Murray Friedman said. He wrote the book on the Black Jewish Alliance. Uh, when Harold Cruz wrote The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. Uh, but then it came back with Black Lives Matter, like it came back with a vengeance with Black Lives Matter. You know, it was like, you know, the light, I don't, do people have these light bulbs anymore? If you had a light bulb and suddenly it got real bright and then it burned out. Uh, right before it burned out, it got really bright. And that's exactly what happened to the Black Jewish Alliance with Black Lives Matter. It got really bright and then it burned out and now it's just kind of a joke. And uh, the uh, the ADL is cutting its own throat uh, by going after Kyrie Irving for something as innocuous as tweeting something, uh, a film that they don't like. They're wrecking their own operation. So I just saw an article today from another Jew. It's in the tablet, Jewish magazine. The ADL has to go. The ADL is making things worse for Jews. They're, they're out of control. Someone's got to pull the plug on the ADL. Well, it's got to show show their Jewish contingents and the money givers that they're doing something. <laughs> so that's what the SPLC does. That's right. You know? They, they, that's they right. scare the Jews into giving money. You know, that's something's right. going to happen. You know. Yeah. If you don't, uh, E. Michael Jones might write another book. <laughs> exactly. All right. Next picture. All right, That's, so we're getting into architecture now. Philip uh, Johnson, yeah, yeah, famous building with the Chippendale crown on it. His attack on Bauhaus. He was a he was a homosexual, completely derivative. Never had an original idea of his own. Uh, also was involved in blasphemy. You can become uh, a, a, an honorary Jew if you become a homosexual, uh, and that's what he was. He had that kind of subversive streak in him. And the crown of the building now, because uh, you made a lot out about that. Uh, what are we looking at here or what should we be looking at as far as the crown? It should be a flat roof. Okay. Uh, this, this is what he was trained to do uh, by Bauhaus. Bauhaus was dogmatic about flat roofs. Uh, it was a, a, a dogmatic uh, tenet of their ideology, okay. uh, which made no sense whatsoever. A flat roof in uh, St. Petersburg, 70th degree latitude. Uh, six feet of snow on a flat roof. Bad idea. Didn't work. Uh, but anyway, so this is his protest. This is uh, at some point, everybody got disgusted with the Bauhaus phone machine and with the box, the glass box. And so here's this is his way of breaking out of that kind of asserting a kind of postmodern identity. All right. It was next, a phase he went through. 
Next picture, John. Okay, Stanley Tiggerman. Yeah, he's the guy who brought uh, Frank Gehry and Thomas Gordon Smith together, uh, a, a kind of academic uh, uh, midwife to postmodernism, Frank Gehry. Uh, or the, the Frank Gehry and Thomas Gordon Smith. Frank Gehry's a Jew. Thomas Gordon, the late Thomas Gordon Smith, was uh, uh, chairman of the Notre Dame Architecture Department. Great, the, probably the only decent department at Notre Dame where they uh, were great proponents of classical architecture. He did the building, the Abbey at uh, Clear Creek Monastery in Oklahoma. And on my book tour, I stopped in and gave a talk at that Abbey. It's a beautiful building and it has the kind of peace. It radiates the peace of a beautiful building. So I was, the monks are very busy. They got this, every, every hour has got something going on. So I'm waiting there for the monk. I'm sitting in the cloister, which is the enclosed space. And there's an arch, and I'm suddenly understanding that, that just the peace that radiates from this arch. And you're just there in the presence of this is the circle. It's half a circle. The full circle would be uh, an image of God, the unity of God. Uh, and this half circle, you're kind of being embraced by God uh, with this arch and this form of architecture, which is a beautiful experience. And uh, that was Thomas Gordon Smith's, probably his final work. And it's still a work in progress. All right. So I, I don't know if you mentioned this because I, I don't think I heard it. Stanley Tiggerman was, quote, post, he said, postmodernism is a Jewish phenomenon, unquote. Anything need, you need to say about that? I mean, what does all that mean for us? Well, so at, at this point, you had uh, Bauhaus as the, the, modern architecture it's kind of plain it's just plain geometric figures uh it's the machine is basically the model that we have so he's here. just talking about architecture or about society and no he's talking about architecture so at a certain point everybody got tired of the box and so you broke in two directions so the catholic thomas gordon smith goes back to the tradition of vitruvius and in a sense discovers uh, ornamentation and also uh, things like the arch and all of these traditional uh, attributes, well, the Jew goes in the exact opposite direction. So the machine is a kind of rebellion against the logos of architecture. So we're going to take it even farther and we're going to have buildings that are completely unrecognizable in okay. any shape, like uh, Frank Gehry's uh, Jimi Hendrix Museum, and I believe it's in Seattle. It looks like three trash bags sitting next to a uh, yeah, I curb, think that. Wait, right. waiting to be picked up by a trash truck. <laughs> next picture, uh, Philip Bess. Philip Bess, architect, uh, professor at the University of Notre Dame, guy I've dealt with, uh, met with, was on a symposium with him. He tried um, to um, he tried to fight these guys, but didn't go far enough. As, as that's what I read. From well, it, I mean, he, it, it's a different. Uh, Phil is not a practicing architect. He's kind of a historian of architecture, so he's coming up with uh, trying to implement these ideas in, in, like, in South Bend. He now wants to kind of rehab a neighborhood where we have actually the parish where I go to church. It was two ethnic parishes very close to each other. The neighborhood has been basically raised. There are empty lots, and he'd like to come in. And, uh, you know, he's a champion of new urbanism. Uh, he had nice things to say about the uh, the uh, Cubs, 
the Cub Stadium in Chicago as a, a place to gather, that type of thing. Okay, next picture. We're almost done. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. This is, Frank I believe, Gary, yeah. I think this is uh, Amsterdam. Is it Frank Gary? Is that where yeah, this building is? Yeah, Dancing House. Yeah, well, it looks as if it's uh, ready to collapse. It's a deliberate uh, violation of the the rigorous geometry of uh, Bauhaus modern architecture. Uh, uh, heading away from Logos uh, looks if it's ready to fall on top of you. That, that's the type of thing he, he thinks. Yeah, I wonder about. what it looks like from the inside. I mean, is it just normal normal walls? Yeah, you, you have to kind of walk sideways, you know, <laughs> tilt it over when you get to that room. I don't know. I never, I wasn't, I never went in that building. Yeah. All right, next picture. Actually, I, I did go in. <laughs> I was Frank Gary. <laughs> That's good. Giving the, the Jewish salute there, just like uh, <laughs> Al Goldstein, the famous picture of Al Goldstein. Oh, yeah. Al Goldstein. I, actually, I did go into the uh, Liebeskind. I don't know whether I put a picture of Liebeskind's Holocaust Museum in Berlin. I was in that in Berlin. Uh, and it's depressing. I mean, what do you expect? It's depressing. Okay. This doesn't raise. There's no beauty there. Yeah. It's it's Jewish grievance. It's a Jewish assault on the people of Germany. Uh, uh, the fact that the Jew has power to force you to grovel in front of his ugly building. This is all just the expression of Jewish power. There's no beauty involved in this. Nothing transcendental about this at all. Wow. I wonder how long this is going to go on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Next picture. 74 of 78. All right. All right. Now, this is Philip Johnson's chapel at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. Now, this is a classic example of uh, the, the homosexual laughing behind the back of the stupid Catholics that <laughs> paid for this chapel. So you see the dome. You remember I talked about the arch as a symbol of God? God's yes. yes. Well, the dome is even more so, and the mm -hmm. dome is over. So what does he do? What's that? Wait a minute. There's a black wall splitting the dome up. <laughs> so what you did was it's like that uh, the, the sign for banning smoking. You know what I mean? You have a circle, and then you have a slash through the circle. Yeah. Uh, and there's usually a cigarette behind it, but now it's the, the sanctuary, yeah. which is a, a completely transgressive building, and the, the, the dumb priests who run uh, this place are were too stupid to understand what they bought. And so they got really embarrassed. And so they had Crisis Magazine bring in Carson Daly, who doesn't know anything about architecture, talking about the great spiritual experience she had by being in this chapel. Give, give me a break. Give me a break. Have you been inside this thing? No, I've never been inside it. Okay. I like I've, Yeah, you can look at pictures. Uh, if you can tell me how that splitting the dome like that is supposed to encourage your uh, devotion to God, you know, you're a better man than I. I don't see it. Yeah. All right. Next picture. Yeah, there's the uh, postmodern <laughs> mafia. All right. Um, the, interesting, the interesting thing here is Peter Eisenman. Uh, was a devotee of Philip Johnson, but he hated the guy, and he was going trying to get the dirt on him. He finally got the dirt. Philip Johnson was a big a fan of Adolf Hitler, and he went to Germany during the 1930s. He loved the Nuremberg rallies and so on and so forth. And Eisenman finally gets the goods on him, and then he realizes 
if I attack Johnson, I won't get any commissions anymore. <laughs> so it's okay. He's he's a good Nazi. Oh, he's a good Nazi, like the like the Azov Brigade in the Ukraine. This is a type of hypocrisy. This oh, yeah. Jewish hypocrisy here. This uh, Johnson flanked by two Jews here who don't care that he's a Nazi. It's all about money. All right, next picture, please. That's, right. the, uh, that's the museum I told you about, the, uh, the Liebeskind's uh, Holocaust Museum. So you're supposed to feel guilty about Auschwitz. Okay. All right, next picture. And this is the resurrection of Mimesis. In Italy. <coughs> it, it, never left, uh, it never left Italy. What's the guy's name again? The artist's uh, name. Gasparo. Yeah, Gasparo. This is St. Simon of Trent. And guess what? He's being uh, offered up. Uh, the Jews are killing St. Simon of Trent. Now, they went ballistic when they found out about this picture. But uh, hey, this is the world we live in right now. Yeah. This is the world we live in right now, where the Jews are the persecutors. Mm -hmm. And the Christians are the group that is being persecuted. And he's being honest about that. And uh, we have Mimesis here, all that those Jews with their big hooked noses there, this guy down here. <laughs> Jews didn't like it. Uh, but this is Italian. The Italians is kind of thumbing their nose at the art world. Exactly what Pietro Anagoni did in 1947 when the world was going gaga over uh, abstract expressionism. Do you, do you know the date of this uh, painting? It's very, well, no, but I don't. But it's recent. It, okay. It's like a, a year ago that it made uh, the scene. It came out. It's in a private collection, so they probably want to find out who it is so they can uh, throw him in jail for hate crimes or something like that. <laughs> okay, uh, last picture. The end. Okay, uh, there you it want is. To comment on the team. Yeah, this is a work of art that I created uh, in my spare time. It has a lot of meaning, you know, it's like, you know, the, the end as opposed to the beginning. Blah, yeah, blah, I blah. like how you space your letters, man. Yeah, Far it's great. Out. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want to go, Mike, or do you want to take a couple of questions? Let's take a couple of questions. Okay. So uh, somebody asked up here, what do you think of Pink Floyd? <laughs> we don't need no edge. It's one of my favorite Jeez, songs. Yeah. <laughs> It's the only song I know by Pink Floyd. Uh, Roger uh, Roger Waters has become a, an outspoken critic of uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it was to be honest with you, it was after my time. Uh, I, I had checked out uh, after I came back from Germany, and I was in that band there. Uh, I just stopped. I stopped playing music. I started listening to classical music and did that for years and then finally got involved in Irish music. So I kind of missed that boat. He's still going strong. I love that song, uh, but that's about all I have to say. All right, here's a question from Jay Poole. Uh, since photography, film, and now YouTube are widespread, how can this media form be used to raise awareness and elevate minds toward logos? Well, you got to get Michael Jones on your program. Right. Uh, look, I'm doing this every day. Every day I'm talking with people all over the world. We have the technological ability. Yesterday uh, or the day before yesterday, I had a group of Israelis talking to a group of Israelis. 
uh, I, it's, this is a, an amazing tool that allows you to talk uh, to people all over the world. And we are making good use of it here. We are spreading Logos by having an intelligent discussion. We are not going to allow ourselves to be banned by these bullies who are trying to shut down uh, intelligent speech. And so I think Logos is going to win at the end. Amen. All right. What are your opinions on filmmakers such as Francis Coppola, Godfather, and well, we already talked about Stanley Kubrick, who had a lot of themes in his film. Um, any comments? Coppola, Coppola uh, Godfather was a vehicle for absolutely great music. The Godfather theme, Nino Rota started off as the uh, the guy who did the music for Fellini films. It's great, great music. It's probably the, the great the greatest film that Hollywood ever produced. And it was it's real. I mean, you feel that you knew these, you know these people. That's what. That's when it's a sign that you're dealing with great art. When you feel that you're you're swept up into this conflict. It was a it was a, a kind of tribute to ethnic America uh, during the 70s when it was uh, the Italian neighborhoods were being ethnically cleansed. It, it's just a, a great film, great music. I just have nothing but good to say about it. Yeah, uh, being Italian, 100. Um, percent It's almost too real for me to watch sometimes i that that scene i think it's in the second one where they're having that procession uh it, it must be in brooklyn and they have the madonna and they're pinning dollar bills to the madonna at the same time that uh robert de niro is going to gun down the godfather at that point it's just it was great just great cinema i mean what oh, you, yeah. don't, that, you don't need cool. you don't need mike jones to tell you it's a great movie everybody knows that you know, that scene where he's getting his son baptized and in the background screen, you see people murdering each other. <laughs> yeah. You remember that one? Yeah, that's your Italian culture, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant, too real. All right. Um, there was a, okay, question. What are your thoughts on the auction sale of the famous painting Salvador Mundi? I find it suspect how it was found and who bought it. Don't know anything about this. No. Okay. No. Salvador Mundi, I think, is the picture of Jesus holding the earth. It's like a crystal ball, though, because uh, I have it in the front of my book, Flat Earth, Flat Wrong. Um, so, yeah, I don't know anything about this either. So, we'll have to find that By out. By the way, I think that the whole flat earth theory was created to distract attention from your uh, book on geocentrism. Yeah, well, that's what we thought too. I can't, I can't but be great, sure. Great minds, that. great minds running in the same circles. Nobody heard. It's completely absurd. And it was all these people who don't know anything who suddenly got distracted from the real thing. I remember when we did that symposium, there were all these reporters there ready to report on it. I think uh, command control, uh, probably the CIA got a hold of it and thought it was dangerous and decided well, to propose well, this. Well, you know, when we put out our movie in 2014, the principal, which was the same theme. Um, Carl Keating calls up the ADL and tells them, I'm an anti-Semite and I'm going to uh, bring back geocentrism to the world. And they attacked me like nobody's business. Within two days, 150 news outlets across the world were calling me an anti-Semite and I was a nut. <laughs> Who knew that geocentrism was anti-Semitic? Who knew? <laughs> How do you get to that? Uh, yeah. What is an anti-Semitic now? 
yeah. All right. Uh, let me see. Where are we? I, there was another question up here. Uh, he says that to say that space. Oh, no. Okay. That's. I knew there was a couple up here. All right, to EMJ, uh, can you prove God's, ex oh, forget it, come on, we're not going to talk about that today. All right, Mike, that's it. Uh, you've answered all the questions, all covered right. all the pages. You did a great job, nice to have you, and uh, God be with you, brother. Go out there and preach the gospel. Okay, you, thank and you. And you use any means you can to do it. Thank you, Bob. All right, you're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. John, uh, we're going to take off here. Folks, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening right. in and writing uh, your questions. And uh, and uh, we'll see you next week, which would be or, uh, November the 16th. And uh, then we'll just have a normal question and answer period. So bring your questions. If I didn't get to your email questions tonight, I will surely get to them next week. And uh, we'll start all over again until the Lord returns. All right. Thank you. Take care. God bless you all.